I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm, I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. And tonight you have a very highly esteemed biologist who breaks a bit of, well, breaks a number of molds. One of them is, I've known James Lovelock and his Gaia hypothesis for a long time. And Lovelock used to complain that climatologists were very interested in, the, in Gaia theory. And geologists became interested very early in Gaia theory. The idea of Earth as a self-regulating quasi-mega-organism but that biologists hated the idea of Gaia. Thought it was just so much new age uh, drivel and uh, pay no attention to James Lovelock. Our speaker tonight takes Gaia very seriously, uh, is laced through his book, and I expect we'll be hearing about it tonight. Tim Flannery. Thanks so much, Stuart, for organising this event and uh, for wearing your Aussie hat when you introduced me. I guess uh, I should have brought mine along, but a month on the road's uh, a bit too long to be carrying your Aussie hat with you every day. But um, look, I'm, I'm really delighted to be here, particularly for this, this kind of seminar series where it seems to me that you uh, calibrate the response that's required to the problems we face at the appropriate level, the long now level taking a bit of a longer-term view. And this book uh, that uh, I spent the last five years writing takes that, that longer view, but it arose out of rather immediate questions that people have been asking me for the last several years, or the last decade, really, ever since I've become involved with climate change. And the questions generally took the form of, uh, well, what chance have we got? Is it too late? Uh, are we doomed uh, as a species to suffer dangerous climate change? And, and what's our future in terms of the population problems we have, the food security and water problems in the face of climate change? The only way that I could think of going about giving a proper answer or an adequate answer to those questions was to go back to the Earth system itself and to try to understand how it's been formed, uh, how it actually works, um, what powers it, and to go back to our own species and, and to understand a little bit more about us because it's at the intersection of our species and the planetary system that these problems all arise. So that's the, the book. It's, um, this is the Australian cover. It's not the one you'll see here. My American publisher looked at that and just said, yuck, it looks too much like the cover of Watchtower magazine. We're not having that in America. And... <laughs> And I fear he's probably right, but my Australian publisher wanted something that said, you know, serious thought to an Australian audience. So that's, that's what the clouds are all about for us, rather than some religious sort of thing. But anyway, it's a, it's a warning to any budding publishers in the room. You, do, you should be a bit careful about your covers, not that you can control everything. But the, the work I did with, with writing the book really took me back to, to this man here, um, because he was the man who explained for the first time how we were created 
and how uh, life on Earth in all its diversity was formed. That's Charles Darwin's tombstone. Uh, it's in uh, Westminster Abbey. And I love the way the British deal with this stuff. They've you know, collected all of their famous dead people and put them in this ancestor house and classified them. So all the poets are together and the playwrights and you know, the scientists. But Charles Darwin, you, you wouldn't know why he's in there. Look at the gravestone. It's the only one that doesn't really tell you why, what he achieved, why he's in the great house tambran, as we called it in New Guinea, or ancestor house. And that is because the ideas that he produced were not just of scientific importance. They had a, an extraordinarily profound effect on the society that Darwin was part of and continue to resonate into our own times. Really, what, what Darwin discovered was extraordinarily simple. It was, it was just that in any population, there is variation between the individuals, that um, some of those individuals will find themselves better suited to the conditions that they, they're living in than others and therefore are likely to leave more offspring and that over the vastness of geological time, as it was just being discovered in, in Darwin's age, that simple process is capable of creating all of the diversity that we see, the biological diversity that we see on planet Earth. Simple, elegant, undisputable, really, as a, as a sort of an idea. And yet Darwin sat on it for 20 years before he'd release it. And I was interested to know why, why that was. And uh, in pursuing that question, I, I went to Darwin's uh, home. He's, uh, most of his adult life was spent at Down House in Kent. And this is uh, the famous sand walk beside his house, which is now a sort of a shrine to science, really. Um, and it took me a while to find this sand walk because, as you can see, there's no sand on it. It's all pebbles. Why Darwin, the great scientist, called it the sand walk instead of the pebble walk? You know, geologists actually do discriminate between sand and pebbles. But anyway, it was the pebble. I found that it was even covered in pebbles in Darwin's day. Um, but the, the reason that the sand walk is important is that it was Darwin's habit to spend several hours every day walking around this sand walk through the forest. Uh, and, and the sand walk's shaped pretty much like a racetrack. It's just a big oval. And as I walked around it trying to peer into the mind of this great man a bit. Uh, I'd read some biographies by his children of him and um, had read the scientific received wisdom about the idea. Um, the idea, the received wisdom is incidentally that Darwin would walk around the sand walk trying to perfect his complex ideas about evolutionary theory and trying to uh, perhaps craft beautiful sentences and paragraphs to convey his ideas to the, to the general public. I don't think that was the case because uh, his children write about playing in the woods there. Maybe they were playing ball or cowboys and Indians. I don't know what they played in those days. But uh, whatever it was, they'd interrupt their father quite frequently. And Darwin always welcomed the interruption. And that's not the reaction of a man who is deep in thought about a particular issue. I think what Darwin was doing on the sand walk was fingering, metaphorically speaking, his worry beads. He was thinking about the impacts of this simple idea on his society. And at the heart of that process of, of thinking about the impacts was really the idea that what he was going to be telling people was that they were not the creations of a loving, caring God with an individual stake in them, but were instead the creations of an unspeakably cruel and amoral process. And that that knowledge 
may see both hope and charity perish along with faith in his society. I think that was his base worry. He sat on the idea for 20 years uh, as a result of that and it was really only this man here, Alfred Russell Wallace, that uh, forced Darwin to publish. Wallace was as different from Darwin as, as anyone uh, could be. Uh, Darwin was uh, middle class, married well, accepted into the British establishment, a careful reductionist scientist, a man of infinite patience, of great orderly, orderliness of mind. Um, Wallace, in contrast, was a working class lad, finished school early because his family couldn't afford to send him through school, went off to the tropics to became, become a collector of biological specimens. And while he was on the island of Ternate in 1858 in what's now eastern Indonesia, he suffered an attack of malaria and in the middle of that attack had a vision of how species were created. He, when he recovered, he wrote his ideas down in a letter to Darwin um, asking that these ideas be published in a scientific journal and when Darwin opened the letter... He just about died in the ditch, as we say in Australia. He was deeply shocked because he said, you know, this guy couldn't have made a better summary of my ideas if he'd had my notes in front of him. Darwin, in despair, wrote to a friend, a very influential scientific friend, asking for advice, and the friend said, well, write, up, write something up really quickly, just a, just a few, few words, a few hundred words, and we'll co-publish both papers together. And that's what happened on the 25th of July, 1858. Uh, the Linnaean Society of London Journal uh, published both of those papers. Neither man could be there for the reading of the paper and be there with his peers to explain it. Wallace, of course, because he was still in Indonesia. Darwin, because the full force of this awful mechanism he had discovered was manifesting itself to him. He was by the graveside of his 18-month-old son, namesake Charles Robert Darwin who died in infancy uh, and furthermore Darwin's wife Emma Darwin who was a deeply religious woman uh, her only consolation that day surely was the consolation of religion and I can only imagine the turmoil in Darwin's mind as he stood by the graveside knowing full well that his words were being read out to the world uh, that would dispel for many that consolation. As it turns out, he needn't have worried quite so much because uh, no one took any notice of either paper. <laughs> the, president of, the president of the society that published those two papers, Thomas Bell, who was an expert on the stork-eyed crustacea, among other things, uh, summarised the results published in the journal at the end of that year saying nothing had happened to revolutionise in any way any aspect of science. In the journal, it was a rather boring year missing entirely the importance of this fundamental idea that had been published. What changed was the following year when Darwin published his book, which he characterised as one long argument uh, on the origin of species, uh, with the subtitle, part of the subtitle reading, uh, and on the preservation of favoured races. Darwin, I think, was a little naive when he published that title because uh, if I was going into a bookshop in mid-19th century England to look at books and saw something titled On the Preservation of Favoured Races, I don't think I'd be thinking about worms that were just a little bit better at being worms than other worms, you know, which is what Darwin meant. I would have been thinking about the British Empire builders out in India and the 
the, the British upper class, the favoured races. And so the idea was taken up, despite the fact that the book uh, doesn't talk about human society. Others very quickly took the idea up. Um, Herbert Spencer, uh, one of the great social scientists, uh, coined the term survival of the fittest to try to explain what Darwin's theory meant for society. And out of that came a whole discipline, a scientific discipline that's still alive and well, well in, our, in our universities today um, in the form of reductionist Darwinian science, neo-Darwinian science, which is a very valuable field of, of enterprise, but also these unfortunate social experiments. Um, among them was the rise of national socialism in Germany in the early 20th century, uh, the, the spread of eugenic societies around the world based on a sort of a Darwinian understanding and also, I'd argue, the establishment of disciplines such as neoclassical economics that argue that a free market is in the interest of the individual. If you believe you live in a survival of the fittest world, a dog-eat-dog -dog world, those sort of things make sense to you. The limits to that reductionist scientific approach, however, came home to me very clearly when I was reading Richard Dawkins's work. Richard Dawkins is a great neo-Darwinian thinker and he has brought enormous insight to understanding evolution's mechanism. But it was when I was reading Darwin on motherhood that I realised how limited that philosophy is as an attempt to explain the world we live in. Um, he wrote something like, you know, the smile of a baby really is an attempt to trick the mother into giving it more resources than its siblings, you know. And, and I thought, Richard, you, you're kind of right at a, some sort of level maybe, some evolutionary level, but... What you've just written tells me nothing about the love between a mother and a child. It is utterly inadequate to under, to, for us to comprehend the complex world we live in. And I really think that that's because what Darwinian thinking has done has elucidated beautifully the mechanism that created us. It tells us nothing whatsoever about the legacy that that mechanism has left behind. And the person who explained the legacy of that mechanism at the very beginning, and better than anyone else, was this man, Alfred Russell Wallace. At the age of 80, in 1904, he published one of the most important books, I think, to be published in the 20th century. It was called Man's Place in the Universe, another curious subtitle. It's a, a study of the, I think it's the, 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 the unity or plurality of worlds. What the hell is he on about there? Basically, his argument was that, that Earth is the only living planet. All of the other planets are dead. The book is the foundation text for the science of astrobiology. It is a forerunner of James Lovelock's work uh, on, on Gaia because in it he discusses the atmosphere, the nature of the atmosphere, the importance of life in creating the atmosphere and regulating the planet's weather systems and so forth. And he also uh, talks about the horror that is air pollution or was air pollution in Britain at the time, the fact that this is stunting the bodies of countless working-class children. And it tells you a little bit about why Wallace was forgotten. If Darwin was of the establishment and fortified the establishment view and justified the unjustifiable, un unjustifiable uh, 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 that the establishment would like to have justified, Wallace was the opposite. He was someone who understood injustice deeply, resented it greatly, and was hoping for a better world. But most of all, what his book pointed out was that the legacy of the evolutionary process is not a survival of the fittest world, but a world of enormous 
complexity and interrelatedness and codependence. The extent of Wallace's message is still being understood by scientists. I just want to point out a very few examples here. This is, these are mitochondria. They're the power packs of our cells. They're in every one of our cells. Um, and yet they are not of us. These organelles began life as independent, free-living bacteria in an ancient ocean a billion years ago and came to live in our cells uh, in much the same way that, that the algae today live in coral polyps. So this was a symbiosis at the beginning. After a billion years of evolution by natural selection, these mitochondria and us are effectively one. It took science, well, until only probably 20 years ago to discover these things even had a separate origin. We can't exist without them for a millisecond and they cannot exist without us. That's the power of coevolution. But if you look at our bodies, they offer many more examples than that of coevolution. You know, my skin is covered in hundreds of species of bacteria and fungi and viruses. I mean, I wash, and I'm, I am an Aussie, but I do wash, so don't worry about that. But, but I can't live without the things. Every one of us is the same. I mean, fully 10% of our weight is not us at all. It is other species, and some of them are quite big. You know, there, there are mites that live only on the human eyebrows. There are other species that live just at the base of the human eyelashes. Our gut is full of alien species, and some of the ones that live there were quite large, things like hookworms. And we depend upon them all. It's recently been shown, for example, that hookworm, uh, with the eradication of hookworm in developed societies, we are now suffering a rise in autoimmune diseases such as Crohn's disease that destroy the bowel. You can buy hookworm eggs commercially now on the internet if you've got Crohn's disease to reinfect yourself with this, what was thought of as a parasite, in fact as a symbiont, right? It's part of this great, great, it's part of this great ecological complexity of thousands of species that we call us. Right? We are ecosystems of near planetary complexity, indispensably tied with thousands of things that are not us that form this thing we call us. So that's the, that's the co-evolutionary message at the bodily level. It, it is an incredibly complex world of interdependency. And that interdependency, I, I don't draw back from telling you that it goes from everything from the mitochondria to the hookworm to the thing we call love between people. All of that, everything we see that is either living or a manifestation of life is a result of the evolutionary process, has been made by evolution, by natural selection. So what has the evolutionary process created at the largest level? What is Gaia? What is this thing James Lovelock called Gaia? There the, there the thing is there. We know that almost nothing comes in but sunlight. Almost nothing goes out but heat. And that the energy harvested from the sunlight uh, is an enormous energy budget, 100 terawatts. That, that's how much energy life commands. And it is that energy budget is put to creating this thing. How was it created? Well, it's pretty... I think pretty straightforward. You know, the, that little um, uh, message at the bottom there tells you information systems organise matter, right? So the DNA that, that is the blueprint for my body has organised all this matter into my body, right? The DNA of life as a whole has organised the matter of the earth into that particular body. And the imprint of life is deep. There's Africa, a continent. Until I 
research this book, I've always thought of the rocks as being somehow separate from life. What I've discovered subsequently is that the continental rocks themselves are a manifestation of life, in part. It's an extraordinary concept. Published in a respect, reputable journal just two years ago, scientists looking at the early history of the Earth, understanding that the continental rocks are derived from the erosion of oceanic rocks, knowing about the energy budget of the early Earth, and knowing that there just wasn't enough energy in the system to create the continents at the time they were created and at the scale they were created. There had to be an extra energy force involved. The only possibility, these scientists point out, is life itself. Life was even then capturing energy, making compounds such as acids that hastened the erosion of the oceanic rocks and gave birth to the rocks beneath our feet, to the continents. And of course, the continents changed everything. They, continental drift opens mid-ocean ridges in the oceanic system and the seawater, the, the entire waters of the ocean, pass through those mid-ocean ridges every 30 to 40 million years. And it's that process that regulates the saltiness of the sea. That's why the sea doesn't keep on getting saltier. Um, when we go to the oceans, we've known for a long time that the oceans were created in their current form by life. That prior to 2 billion years ago, they were full of heavy metals and other toxins. And the living things used those metals as catalysts for their enzymic reactions. Uh, when those living things died, they fell to the bottom of the ocean and so were formed many of the great mineral deposits, the gold deposits, the copper deposits, the iron deposits and so forth, that we dig up today. The atmosphere, well, Lovelock and Wallace even knew. That is a manifestation of life every bit as much as a bird's feather is a manifestation of life of a bird, a single individual bird. The difference is that the atmosphere is the manifestation of life as a whole. 99% of the gases in the atmosphere, Lovelock argues, are a creation of life. The only exception is the 1% that's noble gases. So information systems organise matter over 4 billion years. The, the digital information system as DNA has organised the matter of the planet in a very particular way. And that particular outcome has been to stabilise conditions at the surface of the earth to make it habitable for life itself. That's what life tends to do. That's what the information systems uh, uh, tend to do. But earth is not like a body. It's not like my body or your body because it lacks a command and control system. It doesn't have a brain. What it does have is what I've called geopheromones that operate somewhat like the pheromones that, that regulate ant colonies, and those geopheromones include the greenhouse gases, atmospheric dust, things like methylsulfonic acid and so forth, that um, in minute concentrations cause systemic changes in the Earth system. I just want to go from the Earth system now to the third hierarchical level created by the information system we call DNA. So we've got the body with its command and control system, the organism in other words. We have the planetary system which is a loose confederation of living things. I call it a commonwealth of virtue because every species takes in the washing of every other and the system keeps going around. But there's a third level of organisation present on planet Earth and E.O. Wilson, Ed Wilson, is really the, the great expert in this and that is called the superorganism. A superorganism is a level of organisation intermediate between that of an organism and an ecosystem or the planet as a whole. 
This is a great example. These, what you see before you, are, are cockroaches that 100 million years ago discovered agriculture and became termites. The cockroaches always seem to be ahead of us. I don't know how, but they're 100 million years ahead of us in this case. Um, and they build cities, cockroaches that discovered agriculture, like humans that discovered agriculture, have built great civilizations without the use of reason. They're part and outcome of the evolutionary process. So we see here uh, a, a termite city. It's like a, a skyscraper. It has its own air conditioning systems, its own water supply systems, its own highways, byways, other road systems. It's got its own mortuaries, its uh, food stores, its gardens, uh, and everything else, garbage dumps, everything else that a city needs to function. And here are the little inhabitants of the city on the side there. You can see that they, um, they vary one from the other, even though they are each other's closest relatives. Um, uh, and we, we'll come back to that. But, but part of the reason is that the social insects have discovered the virtues of the division of labour, and so they divide uh, labour up. As I've said, hum the human... Humans have also formed a superorganism over the last 10,000 years. We're far behind the social insects, which include the termites, the bees and the ants. But we are on our way. What can we learn from the insects? The insects differ from us in one fundamental way. In an insect superorganism, each individual is, the other, is very closely related to every other individual in the group. And in the most primitive insect superorganisms, all of them have arisen from species that are monogamous. And I find it interesting that humans also are quite monogamous, wherever that may lead us. But uh, the reason that the insects have to be monogamous, so a single queen mating with a single drone, is that genetic glue is all that holds the insect superorganism together at the early stages of its development. As the insect superorganisms become more complex and we get, the, say, the large atine ants, the leafcutter ants that can have 8 million individuals in their colony and 40 different working castes, and I mean, that, that's a, that's a civilisation on the scale of Elizabethan England. It doesn't have Shakespeare, but it's got a hell of a lot else. The thing about those very complex insect superorganisms is that they have more genetic diversity, they permit more genetic diversity than the more primitive insect superorganisms. And that occurs because a single queen will mate with several males, taking the sperm from several males, therefore giving the colony more genetic diversity and giving it the potential to diversify its worker caste, for example, in a way that can't happen in the more simple colonies. Humans are not genetically closely related enough for genetics to form the glue that holds our superorganism together. But we are remarkably genetically similar. This last month, the human population reached 7 billion. And there is less genetic diversity in the 7 billion of us than there is in any random sample of 50 chimpanzees from West Africa. Yeah? And that is the case simply because our species nearly went extinct 70,000 years ago. The Lake Toba eruption, a, a, a volcanic eruption in Indonesia, reduced the human population to a few thousand individuals. And so we are similar at that level. And that similarity is not enough to hold the superorganism together, but it is enough to ensure that a smile is understood as a smile throughout the human species, that we have a fundamental underlying humanity that we can instantly recognise in each other. So how did the human superorganism 
grow and form and uh, what is the glue that holds it together. We see here the five separate human superorganisms that formed independently beginning about 11,000 years ago and I find this incredible. Jared Diamond talks about this but uh, you know, how is it that in the whole history of the planet no warm-blooded creature has formed a superorganism until 10,000 years ago when one species, our species, does it five times independently. Fertile crescent 11,000 years ago, domestication of wheat was a major breakthrough. East Asia 2,000 years later, millet and rice formed the basis of another superorganism. At least 10,000 years ago in the highlands of New Guinea, uh, the, the domestication of taro and uh, sugarcane led to another. And then in the Americas, entirely independently, about 5,000, 6,000 years ago, uh, other crops leading to the development of yet more human superorganisms. There are two kinds of glue, I think, that hold superorganisms together. One is the division of labour, an incredibly powerful form of glue. And if you think about human civilization for the last thousand years, I mean, our cities have been population sinks because diseases spread so quickly in them and conditions have been so appalling in unsewered cities that life expectancy was really short. And yet people kept flooding to the cities. Why did they come? To sit down at the table of the division of labour and sup from the benefits that other human beings bring. Humans are our greatest resource. In, in a, in a, in a superorganism where we can divide labour, that is, that is self-evident. And Adam Smith realised that way back in the late 18th century. So that is an important element. I'd like to follow on thinking about this a little bit in a second. But the other form of uh, glue that is required is a commonality of belief, I think, among people. And these societies have, by and large, either had a tolerance of multiple beliefs or a commonality of belief. And I guess you could call a tolerance of other beliefs a belief in itself. As these five human superorganisms have come in contact... There's been both good and bad come of it, but the one thing that inevitably happens is trade in ideas, in materials, in innovation. And it was Francis Bacon way back in the 17th century that said, you know, what has made Europe? It was gunpowder, paper and the compass, all invented in China. Brought into Europe, changed the world. just like to talk a little bit about the way we organise our superorganism and compare it with that of the insects. It was Plato, writing two and a half thousand years ago, that, that talked about an ideal human society in the Republic. Very, very interesting book. And he said, in, in the ideal society, uh, there is no difference between thine and mine. And that is exactly the situation in an ant colony, yeah? because the interests of the individual are perfectly concordant with that of the insect civilization. But we are willful, selfish, upright apes. And despite the best efforts of Karl Marx and the rest, thine and mine will always be different to humans. We are differently constituted. Uh, so the challenges of holding together a superorganism and coordinating action between uh, selfish individuals is a very different proposition from that of a society which has genetics on its side. I said that the book arose from trying to answer those questions and I may have seemed to have wandered far from the questions I started with. But what we've learnt so far about the nature of our planet and the nature of our species, 
lets us discern two possibilities, I think, for a human future. One is outlined in this book by Peter Ward, a great friend of mine, called The Medea Hypothesis. Peter argues that uh, it is a characteristic of life to destroy life. The Medea Hypothesis is named, incidentally, for the Greek mythical figure Medea, who killed her own children. And uh, Ward argues that the great extinction events, or at least most of the great extinction events of Earth's history, have come about when life has been very successful. So life is very successful creates a build-up or an imbalance in the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That then leads to a shift in oceanic circulation. That causes a great extinction event. And in, in Ward's um, mind, the destruction of biodiversity, as we're seeing it at the moment, and the current human progress is entirely concordant with Earth history. I think the, pros I think the hypothesis rests on shaky foundations. It rests on a belief, really, in a survival of the fittest world. But we know that we do not live in a survival of the fittest world. And the reason I say that, just to think about this in a, in a slightly different way, imagine a football competition that's a survival of the fittest football competition. At the end of the season, you'd have a winner, but you wouldn't have a competition anymore. There'd only be one team. That's not the nature of the world we live in. We live in a world of enormous diversity, complexity and cooperation. It's not a survival of the fittest world. So the Medea hypothesis, I think, is based on uh, a wrong concept of evolution's legacy, but also uh, is built on an awareness of our current environmental crisis. And I can't argue with that. We are clearly in a, a moment of crisis if we take the longer view. So what am I arguing in Here on Earth? As the book cover says, it's an argument for hope. I'm not going to leave this slide on for very long, but I put it up there just to simply let you know that progress is being made on really difficult environmental problems. This just explains the history of the Stockholm Convention to ban persistent organic pollutants. The, these are things that once they're made, we know they're going to end up in our bodies. By 2004, banned under a very rigorous treaty that, that banned outright the production of these chemicals in developed countries and mandated that wealthy countries needed to fund uh, efforts to eradicate these chemicals in the, in the developing world. And revised in August last year, banning yet more dangerous persistent organic pollutants. The ozone hole, another great example. And, you know, ozone, the ozone story is so interesting. Um, the chemicals that were destroying the ozone layer were finally banned from production on the 16th of September 1987 in Montreal, Canada by universal human agreement under the, the treaty. I think that day is going to be the first great global day of celebration for the human species one day. It was really the first occasion when we acted in our own self-interest together as a species. And this little graphic tells you what was at stake. There is I think 1970, 1974, that's 2060. The colour bar tells you how much ozone's about, the blue end being really bad news, not much ozone. And this graphic tells you what would have happened if the Montreal Protocol hadn't been ratified. By 2060, we would have been living in a world in absolute crisis. No ozone means ultraviolet radiation reaching the surface of the planet. The sort of sunburn we get in 20 minutes outside on a sunny day today, we'd get in a matter of seconds. Um, for each percentage increase in ultraviolet radiation reaching the surface of the planet, we get a 1% uh, increase in the failure of crops to germinate, a 1% increase in blindness in anything with eyes. Ultraviolet radiation tears apart our DNA. 
we have overcome that problem. There's the decline. It takes a long time to register because these chemicals are persistent. It takes them five years to get into the stratosphere. We start to see the decline even out. And here's the good news. The ozone layer is recovering, despite years like this last one when we have very low ozone concentrations over the Arctic because of cold conditions. Some really intractably difficult problems have even been solved. This one is fantastic. That diclofenac, we call it in Australia, you call it Voltaren, I believe, here. Any martyrs to the gout will know that, and anyone who suffers any other inflammatory disease uh, will know what Voltaren is. It's, it's a widespread uh, drug. Uh, it, it's perfectly harmless in us and any other mammals and, and most other organisms. It is invariably fatal to vultures, and we only discovered this uh, through the widespread veterinary use of, uh, of Voltaren in the Indian subcontinent and East Asia as a whole. Uh, it, these these uh, vultures were extremely common birds in East and South Asia up until the use of Voltaren in veterinary practices. Uh, it turns out that if just one cow carcass in 100 contains Voltaren, you will cause the extinction of vultures. And in the late 1990s, early 2000, the vulture population of India, this is all vulture species, was declining faster than the dodo was declining in the 17th century as it headed towards extinction. This was having unfortunate consequences. The Parsi religion, uh, the adherents to the Parsi religion bury their dead in towers of silence. You can still see them in Mumbai. Um, they believe it's wrong to pollute the four main elements of the planet, fire, earth, uh, uh, air and water. And so they prefer to recycle dead bodies directly back into the living, into vultures. Um, with the decline of vultures, uh, their mortuary practices were severely challenged and continue to be. But even more seriously for the Indian population as a whole, the number of dogs, feral dogs, increased dramatically and there were very widespread fears of a rabies epidemic. The way this was solved was extraordinary. The Indian government banned Voltaren as a medical or veterinary uh, drug, but that had zero impact because an Indian farmer that had a sick cow, he'd go along to his doctor and say, hey, doc, my back's not all that good, you know, can I have some Voltaren? And, of course, he'd get his dose and he'd go home and give it to the cow. It turns out that there were other drugs, there were alternatives that could be used, but they were all more expensive. And it was only through concerted community action from groups like... Um, the Centre for Environmental Education in India, getting out there, um, offering farmers a rebate if they bought the more expensive drug for, their, for the treatment of their cattle, that we've started to turn the situation around. It, the, the position for vultures is still very perilous, but we've now seen the return of at least some vultures back to Mumbai where the Towers of Silence are located. So that's an effort where just individual good people got together to make a difference. We've still got an enormous challenge ahead of us, whether we face a Median end or a Gaian future. That graph there with the different colours on it, all you need to know about it is that the, the, the green section is under exploited fisheries, the dark brown section at the bottom is collapsed fisheries, and there's a timeline going from 1950 to 2000 on it. You can see where we're headed. Yeah? It is extraordinarily difficult for humans to agree on regulating a global commons. The atmosphere is, is one, and we can talk a bit about climate science later on and how we're doing with that, but the oceans is another really, really difficult area to get agreement. On land, we're doing much better. We have stopped, or we're in the process of stopping the destruction of the rainforest now. Um, you know, only a couple of years ago it was thought that 
uh, there would be no more rainforest outside protected areas by 2050. That has been turned around by new satellite surveillance and a renewed willingness by countries working together to stop the clearing of rainforests. One of the best examples of this is in the state of Pará in southern Brazil, where a very energetic governor using satellite data tracked illegal clearing, worked out where the cattle from the cleared lands were being sold to slaughter the abattoirs, and then worked out who was buying meat from those abattoirs and slapped a billion dollar fines on, on the whole chain, top to bottom. It stops the illegal clearing of rainforests very effectively. So we have the tools in some instances to do something. Other problems are more intractable, so much hangs in the balance. Why do these things happen? Why do, why do people clear the forest that we depend on? Why do we take such a short view of so many problems? Very interesting question. Um, these guys here demonstrate part of the answer. These are Somali pirates, uh, young men with nothing to lose who will take enormous risks to try to get something. And it turns out that we all have a phenomenon called a, a discount factor in our, in our minds. Social scientists have tried to understand this and the way they've done it is by talking to students and saying, um, well, I'll give you $100 right now, but you name a sum that you would want to receive if I asked you to wait for a year. And it turns out young men will often ask for $500. Young women are less greedy if you want. They might settle for $300. But why the difference and why the huge amount? After all, if you took that $100 and put it in a bank for a year, you'd only get $10 interest. Right? We have a huge discount factor at work. The reason that we are seemingly impatient, we want a lot for waiting, I think, is that in our deep evolutionary past, life was very uncertain. The chances of us living for another year were not as high as they are today. So it made sense to take what you can get now. Take it to its extreme, young men who may be dead by the age of 20 because they live in, a, in some of the poorest suburbs and, and most drug uh, infected suburbs in our civilization have a very high chance of, of dying or going to jail uh, by the age of 20. And so they'll take anything they can get today, particularly if it'll get them a girl, because when you get down to this level of human behaviour, you know, where, where people have nothing to lose, it seems to me that their genes take over. And the, the genes don't care about us as individuals, right? Our genes don't. They just want us to reproduce. So if you as a young man can get your genes into... Uh, someone else by getting a girl pregnant, that's the way out for the genes. You know? Not for us, it's appalling. We as an individual may die, but the genes get their way. That all changes when you give people something to lose. Once we have something to lose, we can take a longer-term view, and we do. You can see from what I'm trying to say there that in a global human superorganism, as we're currently forming... Um, the battle to eradicate poverty is one of the most urgent tasks we have because we need to give people a longer time frame. We need to give them the long now look at things, not the view that we'll see them chop down the last tree just so they can survive. I'm really fascinated by what's happening with our current global, with our current superorganism. We've gone from a tribal world where just over the last few centuries the, 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 the superorganisms are alighting, are coming together. Uh, into a world now where we are interconnected individual to individual in a way we never were before. There's 3.3 billion mobile phones on the planet. There is uh, internet connection is, is widely available. And what that is doing is allowing ideas to flow very quickly 
from one individual to the other, and that is enormously empowering of the individual. The wave of democratisation I've seen in my life is extraordinary. Um, I think that, you know, I, I remember growing up in a world where dictators were embedded in the heart of Western Europe. This is Egypt today. We can see the way these ideas, democratic ideas, are flowing. And I could just, uh, just need to say here as well that for selfish, willful, upright apes, democracy is the only system that will ever work. It empowers the individual, as awkward and difficult as it is, as Churchill said. You know, it's the worst possible system of government, except for every other system that's been tried from time to time in this world of woe of ours, and that's entirely true. Hard, difficult, but the only practical system, I think. So where is all of this leading us in terms of our relationship with the planet? Is Gaia itself changing as these changes occur? I've said several times we're greedy and selfish. Does that mean we can't be a global intelligence for planet Earth? Well, our brains tell us otherwise. Brains are greedy and selfish. Brains use, they only weigh 2% of, uh, of our body mass, but they use 20% of the energy we get from our food. They are, by definition, greedy. They're also incredibly selfish because brains will cut off resources to any other organ in the body before they, they deprive themselves of one iota of oxygen or nutrients. They're just like us. They're greedy and selfish, but they're great command and control systems for the body because they adhere by one rule, that they cannot bankrupt the system upon which they depend. What is Gaia like? And what might Gaia be like in future as we start to develop and change? James Lovelock believes that Gaia is like an old lady who has to share her house with a growing and destructive group of teenagers... Gaia grows angry, and if they don't mend their ways, she'll evict them. So that's his view, that the Median hypothesis is in fact correct, that we're headed on a path to destruction. I don't think that's right. I think that Gaia is much more like a newborn infant. After all, a newborn infant has a newborn brain, a nervous system and a body, but they're yet to be fully integrated. So self-awareness and self-consciousness are very limited. And that's the situation I think we're in. We are in a world where we are becoming interconnected to the extent of forming a global consciousness. Um, but this global consciousness and the nervous system we have in terms of our satellite surveillance and our agriculture and every other interface with the living planet, with the body, if you want, is still being integrated and will take some time to be integrated. And, of course, infancy and birth is the most dangerous period in the life of any organism, any entity. The ancient Greeks who coined the term Gaia really did believe the Earth was a perfect, uh, complete organism like ourselves. They thought the Earth was a living organism, a being. It never has been, but maybe it has the chance in the deep future to be just that as it gains a command and control system. I love that idea that information organises matter and I'd just like to look at it on the longer time frame. This is a, this is a life bar of the Gaian organism formed 4.5 billion years ago out of a cloud of dust. By 3.8 billion years ago, life had somehow appeared on the planet. No one knows how, but everything we know about it is that it had to have originated in Earth's crust. That's that all we are as walking, talking bits of Earth's crust. 
ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We've always known it, but it is absolutely true, as true today as it ever was. We're not separate from nature. We're not separate from Gaia. We are of it. We are a bit of the Earth's crust. By three billion years ago or so, life had taken control of the Earth's system. The energy budget was big enough for that to be able to occur. We start seeing the profound transformation of our planet into a living planet. By 100 million years ago, the first superorganisms had been created, those cockroaches that discovered agriculture. By 10,000 years ago, the human superorganism, the first intelligent superorganism, had begun to form. What does the future hold? At the rate that we can travel through space now, it would only take five billion years to colonise the entire... five million years to colonise the entire galaxy. For a paleontologist, that's not very long at all. But whatever the case there, I think we can think of Gaia, the Earth system, as having reproduced, reached puberty and reproduced the moment that we colonise another planet. That time frame also gives us a sense, I think, of our chances. There's a wonderful paradox called Fermi's paradox, um, named and framed by an Italian physicist, Enrico Fermi. And he, his paradox is really simple. He looked up at the stars, saw there was billions of stars out there and thought, you know, why the great silence? Why aren't we hearing from other intelligent life? It is clear that the only form of life that could potentially communicate with us is an intelligent superorganism. Indiv intelligent individuals can be as smart as they want. Without the division of labour, we will never be able to achieve great things. It's possible that the Medea hypothesis is right and that, that life has an intelligent superorganism in particular carries within it the seeds of its own destruction and that at the moment of birth these entities tend to die. That's one possibility. But that timeline gives me a possibility, another possibility that's more optimistic and that is that we genuinely are the first. It took all of time from a big bang up to that moment just to create the elements that are required to make life the heavy elements, carbon, iron and so forth. As Carl Sagan said, we're made of stardust, the stuff that forms in the hearts of stars. It takes three generations of stars to get to there. And then all of evolutionary history from there to now to create a global intelligent superorganism and how close we came time and time again to not making it. If it hadn't been for an asteroid striking the planet and destroying the dinosaurs, we wouldn't be here. If it hadn't been for the Tober eruption reducing our diversity to a point where we were so similar we could speak to each other, empathise with each other and understand each other, we wouldn't be, I would argue, in this great global superorganism that we have created. I think it's entirely possible we are the first. And as Alfred Russell Wallace, my great scientific hero, speculated at the end of his book, Man and the Universe, maybe it is our destiny to perfect the human spirit in the vastness of the universe. But one thing I'm sure about, we're never going to find out if we if we uh, don't make the right decisions over the next few decades because the global human superorganism newly formed is threatening the basis of its own survival. Thank you. from Carter. If the Earth, as an organism, doesn't have a brain, is the modern civilizational superorganism capable of having one? 
or I guess being one, uh, and uh, is that good or bad news, whichever way you answer it? Well, I, I, think, I, I think that we are forming a sort of a, a global intelligence. You can see the way we're sharing ideas now and coming to a, a common view, and, and that gives us the capacity to, to send a strong, clear message to, to Gaia, to the Earth, and we did it with the Montreal Protocol. Right? We decided mm -hmm. to stop destroying the ozone layer. That was a single global message. So potentially we can do it. Uh, and I think that we have, despite our selfishness and our greed, we have uh, a very strong self-preservational instinct and we have an instinct to cooperate. Mm -hmm. So I do think that this, this global intelligence could become a global intelligence for the planet, but it needs time to mature, it needs time to develop for a start. It's, only, it's barely newly formed. You know, we, we still have the remnants of tribalism with us, we still have immense poverty in parts of the world. Um, we still face you know, this growing population, but, uh, but I think we could make it. Well, you cite the Montreal Protocol as coming together and managing the Earth Commons pretty well, mm. and that's a great moment. But you're, you spend most of your time on climate issues now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you're trying to get a carbon tax in Australia, and uh, you're encountering sort of the opposite of the, moderate pro of the Mon Montreal Protocol. You're encountering enormous resistance. Yeah. Say more about that. What's, what's actually going on here? Sure. Look, I spent three years dealing with, um, with the Copenhagen Climate Council. I chaired the council and um, in the lead-up to the Copenhagen meeting. And a lot of people were disappointed that Copenhagen didn't produce a treaty, a global treaty. We, we who were close to it, knew that wasn't going to happen a year out. It was just the differences were too great. So what was your default? If you knew it wasn't going to happen, what were you then hoping for? Well, the Australian government was pushing for this thing called the Accord, which is based on a, a trade negotiations, you know, mm -hmm. where each nation voluntarily undertakes a series of actions that help move towards free trade. That's the basis of the Copenhagen Accord. And that instrument, signed at the last minute through mm -hmm. the intervention of President Obama, is one of the most important things to happen in recent human history because what it has done has now uh, been strengthened at Cancun and we've had 80% of the emitting nations subscribe to it. So 80% of the emissions are covered under the, under the protocol. Um, the pledges that are in place so far are enough to get us two-thirds of the reductions we need to avoid dangerous climate change. So it's not good enough, but it, it, it's getting us in the right direction. Uh, the big question now is honouring those pledges. And after we we abandoned or disbanded the, the Copenhagen Climate Council, we all decided we'd go back to our own countries and make sure that we honour the pledges. So Australia's big battle now is about honouring our pledge by getting that legislation in place. In the US here, you, you uh, pledged a 17% emissions reduction below 2005 level by 2020. I'm very pleased to say I met with President Obama's climate advisor last week and you are at minus 9% already, so you've already achieved over half of that. Yeah? and you've got more to go, despite the inaction and stupidity of Congress, if you'll forgive me we saying... We do it with, with economic uh, semi-disaster. Yeah, but you, you are going to have a, a cap-and-trade system here in California. You know, the, the states are acting. There's a lot happening yeah. at the federal level in terms of transport with new cafe standards and so forth, and there is a chance that you will actually achieve that target despite the naysaying of the right. But it's interesting, you know, when you think about that, where the opposition's coming from... It's th th there is a sort of a, a, an emerging mentality, right-wing mentality, that's resisting all of this stuff, that's still stuck in the old survival of the fittest world. It still subscribes to the, the sort of neo-Darwinian paradigm, I think. And, and that, that's, that's, what, that's what the fight... It's actually a battle of ideas. 
So suppose Darwin and Wallace were here. What would they, the two of them be making of climate situation? Well, I, I think that, that Darwin would be saying, show me the minutiae of the evidence. I'm not sure how it all works, you know. Mm -hmm. Whereas Wallace would say, well, I could have told you that a century ago. <laughs> 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 Question from Austin. What do you think about uh, E.O. Wilson's recent renunciation of kin selection in favor of group selection? He got in big trouble with... Uh, Dawkins over that. Does the debate tell us something about Gaia or our chances to form an intelligent superorganism? Yeah, look, I think that, that Wilson was right to renounce um, uh, kin selection. The mathematics doesn't, mm -hmm. doesn't add up. Um, but whatever the mechanism is that, that is creating this at a genetic basis, um, and it's happening between unrelated genetic taxa, by the way, like the mitochondria and ourselves, mm -hmm. there are powerful forces at work that, that result from that cruel and amoral mechanism called evolution by natural selection that create the thing we call love between human beings, that create the bonds between species and the bonds between individuals. All of that's, that's an evolutionary outcome. This sounds yeah. a little warm and fuzzy, Tim. Well, why should it? This is a, everything about us, every manifestation of life is a result of evolution by natural selection. Mm -hmm. Love is part of that, yeah. It's part of the bond that keeps our civilizations together, that keeps our... We can have love of country... Love of our environment, love of other people. I mean, th th this is this is part of the evolutionary outcome. Uh, these lovely superorganismic uh, humans are future eaters, according to one of your best books. Yeah, that's right. We've gone through a period of being just that. We have, and we haven't had awareness of what we were doing most mm -hmm. of the time. Yeah, we've been very powerful, but we've been without wisdom and an understanding of the way the global system works. So one way of looking at the future is to say, you know, is our understanding of the Gaian organism, the Gaian, Gaian entity, uh, you know, that is happening at the same time we are becoming ever more powerful in terms of disrupting it. You know. So it's a race really between perhaps, you know, intelligence and technological capacity or true intelligence and, and you know, our, our, our technology. Uh, as we were driving over here, you were mentioning your most recent scientific paper was about the megafauna of Tasmania, yeah. which, uh, you want to tell that story of the Australian megafauna died and then the Tasmanian megafauna died, what was that about? Yeah, well, you know, in the, in the past, uh, 50,000 years ago, every, every continent had a diversity of large mammal species on it, and um, they all vanished except for that in Africa, and it's long been debated about why they went extinct, and we had a great, great opportunity in Australia where uh, we have an offshore island called Tasmania, Mm -hmm. And um, people arrived there later than they arrived on the mainland. So I thought, and, and Tasmania is not that far from southern Australia, so the same climate regime runs through the whole thing. So mm -hmm. I thought a great test of this idea, whether it was people or climate, is to look at what happened on Tasmania. If it's climate, they should go, the megafauna should go extinct at the same time as they do on the mainland 45,000 years ago. Turns out that wasn't the case. The megafauna survived to 40,000 years ago in Tasmania, so 5,000 years longer. They go extinct when people arrive. So people have been very destructive, you know, uh, and continue to be destructive of ecosystems. It Were these people with spears, or, or what was actually the mechanism of are they setting fire to the habitat? Oh, I think it was just direct hunting. I mean, you know, these, big, these are big marsupials. They're not the brainiest creatures on the planet. And, mm -hmm. of course, they've never seen a, 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 a bipedal carnivore before, an ape. They wouldn't run away from us, mm -hmm. and, you know. The, it's interesting, naivety is important. You read some of the old whaling journals about whalers where you know, people will spear a whale uh, and harpoon it rather 
and, and as it's thrashing about, other whales will come in, come in around it, and they'll all be speared as well. And that's, that's naivety. You know, those whales are so big and powerful, if they figured out what was going on, they could have sunk that whaling ship. You know? But they, they just, they, they're naive of the threat. Big brain, naive guys. Yeah, exactly. So naivety is important. Well, one of the things that's intriguing me about going on now is uh, the idea of Pleistocene rewilding, of mm. bringing back the, uh, the megafauna, and uh, that we could have mastodons and mammoths back in North America like we used to. And you know, your book explained that humans showed up here, and that was it for the megafauna, except for a few. Um, Involves a little bit of genetic engineering, but we can get mastodons and mammoths back. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Well, I think that rewilding is going to be the great human initiative or one of the great initiatives of the 21st century. Hmm. We're, we're already seeing it at, this, at the small scale. And that, that, you know, the small scale ranges from people planting some indigenous plants back in their local park to a state reintroducing wolves or some species that's been exterminated there. And we're mm -hmm. seeing that already happening. And part of the reason that people want this, we, we want to create more competent ecosystems. We want to preserve our biodiversity. And, mm -hmm. you know, the 100 terawatt budget that Earth runs on is degraded whenever we destroy living systems. It's enhanced when we restore them. So the initiatives are already happening. Whether we will have the technology to reconstitute woolly mammoths mm -hmm. in, in future or not, I, I don't know. But How I about the Australian megafauna? Would you like some of those back, giant kangaroos? Oh, I'd love stuff. them. But I'd love to see them. But we, we have no DNA. As went extinct so long ago. Really? We, so, yeah, so long. we don't have a chance. But How you about guys dodos do dodos or things like that anymore. Yeah, you can do. You could do. If we had the technology, you could do dodos because the DNA is there. You know, just like with your mammoths, you could do it in giant marsupial wolf. Can you get that one back? That one is possible. In fact, it, we know it'll cost about a, a less than a million bucks today to get the DNA code for that sorted. It's actually there in museum specimens. Start a fund. Yeah, yeah, well, that's right. We don't have the technology to take that digital DNA data, though, and build a thylacine yet, but, mm -hmm. you know, when we're talking about long now, you know, mm -hmm. a century from now, I, you know, you have to say it's a fair bet we will. My sense is that it gives people hope when rewilding occurs, when the wolves come back, yeah. when the buffalo come back. Uh, I suppose we could get passenger pigeons back. I hadn't thought of that before, but yeah, we could. Yeah, we could. Yeah, sure. And, you know, to undo some mistakes is pretty attractive. It's wonderful. It gives me hope, and it's one of the reasons I wrote about it. And because some of the battles we're in now, they're so soul-destroying, like the climate one. You know, you know there won't be a moment of victory. It's just going to be a hard grind my entire life and your entire life as we gradually wind back the emissions. Well, you just sort of endorsed a radical approach to bringing back certain kinds of life. How radical will you get in bringing back a, a nice, steady, familiar climate? Is geoengineering in your list of uh, might-have-to-dos or never-dos? I think it's in the list of might-have-to-dos. We hope we won't have to, mm -hmm. but um, no one can guarantee the outcomes of this great experiment that we're running now with Earth's climate system. <clears throat> so are you watching that? Do you have a favorite, you know, do you like to do sulfur dioxide in the stratosphere or uh, biochar or what? Well, what I'm, what, I, what I'm interested in at the moment is getting some research done so we can look at the unintended consequences, possible unintended consequences of any of those interventions. Mm -hmm. We don't know enough about any of them at the moment and we mm -hmm. need more research to, t to guide us in our thinking. We also need to start laying the foundations for agreed protocols for their use because mm -hmm. 
the last thing we want is one country going out and doing it because they're facing a crisis when it could have an enormous detriment to the planet as a whole. Mm -hmm. So we need some agreed protocols in all of this as well. So I think there's a lot of basic footwork to be done in geoengineering before we need to consider which options are best. No country in the world is putting government money into research on geoengineering. There's a little bit here and there, but it's not as big an initiative as it should be. Australia, for example, is uh, our, our, our research, national research organisation is looking at the impacts of uh, sulphur dioxide in the stratosphere on rainfall patterns in the southern hemisphere, so that's mm -hmm. a start, but, you know. You know, one of the things I got from your uh, Eternal Frontier book that was a surprise to me, there were a lot of things that were surprised to me in North America. Who knew? Uh, you described it as a, a sort of an amplifier of climate change, uh, or maybe especially sensitive to climate change. You, how does that work? Well, it's, it, it seemed to me that the geography of the continent was set up so that you've got these mountain ranges running on the east and west side of it and a big flat plain in the middle of the continent which is just a thoroughfare for weather systems. And, you know, you've got very extremely cold air in the north and very, very hot moist air in the south. And they, they, they rampage across the continent. I called it Two a Two-thirds great... of the way down, you get tornadoes. Yeah, great climatic trumpet is what mm -hmm. it is. And, and the climate can change. I mean, I experienced it when I lived here. I lived here for a year, and it was wonderful. Living in Boston, seeing the place go from what appeared to my naive eyes to be a tropical rainforest, you know, that was so green, mm -hmm. and full of all these tropical birds, by the way, as well, that fly up there to live mm -hmm. there. Two months later, I wake up in bed thinking, I haven't seen an ant or a fly for some time now. There's something wrong with this place. And then this white stuff starts falling out of the sky. <laughs> and you think, actually, this is a very alien environment, very different. And that, that extreme change in weather, you know, is, is part of that. So is it more of a north-south channeling forcing than in Europe or Asia or other places? Yeah, well, Europe's got the, the mountain range running transversely, uh -huh. so it's, it's cut off, you know. And Australia's just incredibly variable. But, you know, it explains a lot. I mean, I, I was fascinated in this country. Why do all the plants, the trees, have leaves kind of va vaguely shaped like my hand, you know? They're mm -hmm. all from different families, I discovered. Why is it that in my country they've all got leaves shaped like a sickle? And they all come from different families. So the star and the sickle, why is it? turns out that your leaves, are, are the, if, you, if you stretch a membrane over a structure like a hand-shaped structure, that is the most cost-effective way energetically to create a membrane surface to capture the sun or to do anything. Right? And it's the McDonald's coffee cups of leaves. You chuck them away at the end of the season, which your plants do. They throw their leaves away. I couldn't believe it <laughs> when I saw it. Our plants would never throw their leaves away. They're too valuable, you know. They're, these little sickle-shaped things that are kind of hard and they resist being eaten by insects and, you know, because the nutrients in Australian soils are so limited that the plants cannot afford to lose their leaves. We'll have plants die if a hailstorm comes and knocks a certain percentage of leaves off the plant. They can't oh. survive the stress. Whereas here they chuck them all away every year. I'm thinking, my God, this is a different country. <laughs> so is that why your eucalyptus trees are so happy on this continent? That they're uh, astounded to find good soil and something? Astounded to find good soil, astounded to be without all of their predators mm. as well. And they've, they've left all of their diseases and predators behind in Australia. You know, our, well, eucalypts look scragglier in Australia because mm -hmm. things do try to eat them, including koalas and stuff. So. I'd like koalas. to see how koalas would go here. So if we had a bunch of koalas, we would mm. be able to check the... No, this, yeah, go, give Next it a thing try. you know, it's <laughs> the koalas, the cane toad of North America. They, they, exactly. <laughs> this would be koala candy, this stuff here, these eucalypts. They'd love it. Nice nutrient, nutritious leaves. 
You uh, referred several times to 100 terawatts. One of the mm -hmm. questions from Anonymous is, what exactly requires 100 terawatts, and how does that relate to the constant uh, incoming solar energy? Sure. Well, plants capture about 4%. And humanity, as I understand it, uses about, what is it, Sol 16 terawatts? Yeah, right about. It's a, it's a small percentage, mm -hmm. yeah, 16. So all of human energy... But that's actually a pretty large fraction of the whole bloody oh, yeah, life budget. Oh, absolutely. It's big. But okay. it, it's about the proportion of the brain to the body. We 2% of the mass, 20% of the energy. That answers budget, the right? question of if we're the brain. Yeah, 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 right. So it's about the same we're the ratio. greedy 20%. That's right. Yeah. yeah, 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 right. So there's, maybe there's something in that, or maybe it's coincidence. Whatever it is, uh, the 100 terawatt budget comes from life capturing 4% of the sunlight that hits the surface of the planet. Uh, and that is all, all of that energy is put into creating chemical imbalances between the three principal organs of planet Earth, right? So... The rocks are, are out of balance chemically with the oceans and the atmosphere, and, and so is the atmosphere with the oceans. On a dead planet, the planet is at equilibrium. It is, it is at, at chemical rest. Yeah, it's what the physics and the chemistry alone would create, a system at rest. Whereas on Earth, this enormous energy budget is used to creating disequilibria. So the, oxygen, uh, so the atmosphere is full of oxygen. The oceans have no minerals in them. The Earth's crust is full of all of the dangerous minerals and carbon that life's put there to keep it out of the atmosphere. I mean, carbon is one of the great imbalances. You know, there's hardly any in the atmosphere compared with a dead planet. That's right. right. Yeah, it's all in the rocks. Million. It's all kept in the rocks. So, so that's what the budget's used for. Good answer. 95% or 98%, whatever it is, CO2, high levels of CO2 anyway in the atmosphere. And it's chemically at rest. It's what you'd expect, like any dead planet. There'll be a, an equilibrium in the chemistry of the rocks and the atmosphere. There's a question from Amber Kerr, who wants to note that Amber is from UC Berkeley. You said we must eradicate poverty to give people a longer time frame, a lower discount rate. Yet, mm -hmm. it is the rich people on Earth who have by far the biggest environmental impact. How do we get around that conundrum? Well, we, it's, that, that is the great conundrum. Well, because we won't slow human population unless we create um, uh, a more affluent um, a poor. Thanks. And, you know, getting people to give something up is the hardest thing. It, it, I, I've thought about it. I, the, I'm, I'm no expert in this area, but I'm sort of interested in what we use our wealth for. And that has changed over time. We, we haven't always used it for conspicuous display of self-owned wealth. I, I worked in New Guinea for, for 20 years, Stuart, and there were societies up there where a big man, a man who wanted a big name, would build debt over time. And then he would say to people at a certain moment in time, I want a pig from every one of you. And he'd get 100 or 1,000 pigs together and have an enormous pig feast right? mm -hmm. and distribute the meat. And what he was because you can't bank meat, right? you, can't, you can't preserve it. Mm. He was banking obligation by giving it away, the mm -hmm. debt-based form of society. And in the past, we've had societies of potlatch. You know, we've had, uh, in medieval Europe, people, kings would give away their wealth to create cathedrals mm -hmm. right? because they, they, that was a way of establishing how great they were. So the way we use wealth is important, and I... I I don't think that's a fixed human thing. I don't think the kind of current greed that we have for material objects is, is very long-term, and I don't think it's fixed. I think it's a result of us coming out of poverty fairly recently, that conspicuous display of wealth. And even that's changing quickly. You know, the old days of the 
cigar-smoking boss, you know, who was overweight, who dropped dead at 60 of a stroke, you know, with his big car. That's, cha- that's going. We're, we're, we are changing all the time with this. I don't know where it's going to end up, but I know it's changing. Well, there you are in Australia. You guys are close enough to Asia and South Asia and so on, Indonesia, to be paying close attention to what's going on there. A whole lot of people are getting out of poverty yeah. in that part of the world. Is this playing out? Are they taking a longer-term perspective on things as that happens? Uh, what we're seeing in places like China is people using their wealth as conspicuous displays. So, I mean, I've been to, been to China to a banquets where people will order a bottle of very expensive French champagne or a number of them which they'll drink and have no idea even how, what temperature it's to be drunk at. And obviously the taste is nothing. It's mm-hmm. the fact they can afford it and display it that's important. Mm-hmm. So they're probably at the stage that a lot of people were in the ni- at in the 19th century, early 20th century in the USA, you know, mm-hmm. conspicuous display of wealth. Mm-hmm. So we, that will be worked through. Um, as a society as a whole, though they are actually responding... So a good example is forest cover. Thirty years ago in China, forest cover was at eight and a half percent. It's now at about eighteen percent, because they're getting affluent enough to be able to be concerned about that and and do large scale reforestation projects. So, these things take time and change, but mm-hmm. there is no doubt that you know you've got to give people something to lose in order for them to take a longer term view. And it's interesting in that regard. I was just looking in the Wall Street Journal this morning. There's now three hundred over three hundred million middle class Africans, and that is something, a prospect, I think, for great hope. Yeah, and they're relatively invisible. Um, Africa, you know, sort of enough people kind of wrote off Africa as a basket case and mm-hmm. turned attention. Maybe that's good. And when we turn our attention away, these places yeah. do better on their own. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of very serious charity and missionary yeah, work yeah, and so sure. on going on there. Um, but we don't think of Africa the way we think of Asia as sort of a, uh, a worrisome competitor yet. No, but, you know, if you think back on, on what, you know, uh, Asia was like 50 years ago, mm. very, very different place. It's now, you know, China has gone through the demographic transition. India is going through it. We can see the beginnings of the demographic transition in sub-Saharan Africa now. So. How about Australia? It, when I was there with an American Indian wife many years ago... Um, seemed pretty racist to me. Oh, yeah. Well, it was, it was terrible. We, we have always had a fear of Asia particularly because mm. we're very close to these massive population centres and we've had mm. a white immigration policy that have kept them out. Um, we've despised our own indigenous people, mm. um, you know, historically. Right, right. Um, but something changed in Australian society, I would say, in the 70s, 70s maybe. For some reason... Perhaps the Vietnam War changed it. The first ma- excuse me, major non-European immigrants were from Vietnam. And there was a lot of fear around that. But it's, it's, Australia is now a multicultural society. You can go into any of our cities and meet people from anywhere on the planet. Sort of passively or proud of it? Or how does that play? Very, very proud of it now. Yeah, really? I mean, we're very ashamed of our past, which was mm-hmm. appallingly bad, actually, mm-hmm. um, in terms of racism, but it was a xenophobia, you know. And we were, you've got to remember, we were almost invaded by the Japanese as well. I know. It was a very real fear. It was only you guys who saved us, you know. We're very aware of it and grateful too. Guadalcanal. These guys, the Marines, exactly. The Marines downstairs. (laughs) That's That's true. (laughs) No, he's not kidding. No, I'm not. They're still greatly esteemed. And all of the Marines who survived Guadalcanal got super laid. 
Yeah. <laughs> and that, you know, that almost caused the Japanese to win. A mate of mine was dismantling Japanese bombs and he found a propaganda bomb full of these bits of paper shaped like a dollar note. And on one side of it was these Aussie soldiers slogging up the Kokoda Trail, you know, with mm. mud all over them and bullets flying. And on the other side was a scene from an Australian bedroom with a couple going hammer and tongs in the bed with an American uniform hung on the bedpost. <laughs> so that was supposed to dispirit us Australian soldiers. So... <laughs> <laughs> History is wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Kevin Kelly has a question. Is there a challenge in having a superorganism in a set of one? No backup, no redundancies. Is there a way to add redundancy to Gaia? This, by the way, is something mm. Lovelock ran into, you remember, with biologists yeah, yeah, early sure. on. That's right. Well, that's right. What The, the argument um, about Gaia was that how is natural selection occurring? Because there's only one, doesn't, right. you know, it doesn't seem to be reproducing, and I, I would, I would, my response to that is that we're, we're still gestating. We, we have not yet been, we have not got to puberty yet. Puberty will occur when we colonise another planet, right? It's, it's an organism we're looking at here. It's a single organism, or like becoming an organism. Um, but in terms of whether there's backup systems, uh, I don't think so. I think we are going, we are going to become a single global superorganism. The benefits of cooperation are so enormous that no one is going to want to stay outside the system or could stay outside the system. Um, I'm afraid we have a, only have one brain. There will, only be one, there will only be one global intelligence, I think, for the planet. This sounds kind of like black helicopters from the United Nations. And black helicopters? One government. I'm sorry, that's a, it's a standard right-wing American paranoia thing that... that the United Nations wants to take over, and uh, all of us liberals are, are helping that happen. And the, the black helicopters, the United Nations, oh, right. are conspiratorial. Full of blue helmets. This happen, yeah. right. Well, look, I, I haven't mentioned world government once. I don't think we're ever going to have a world government. It, it, it's not necess- it's going, as far as we know, so far it hasn't been necessary. All that's been necessary is to have a mechanism to agree mm-hmm. on how we deal with, with common problems. Right. So that's what I, I can't see a global government working. That's sort of a, a command and control economy. It, it doesn't work with us selfish, upright apes. We, we need democratic systems with all of their tediousness, um, but, but that's the, the only way we have of dealing with it. And there are many systems of managing the commons and various fisheries and things like that where it's not strictly a government that yeah. makes it happen, but a set of agreements that all the participants come to and then... Yeah deploy. That's right. You know, it's interesting to be in a solar system with a planet which is busily getting out of its life infancy. Mm. And there are other planets we can sort of look at out of the corner of our eye. And one of the things that surprised me in James Hansen's book on the most recent one on climate storms of my grandchildren, mm. he throws in the, uh, the Venus option. Yeah. And the Venus option is that um, basically Gaia can't keep up and we go to Venus, which is a total greenhouse planet with zero life on it. Uh, it's hotter on the surface than Mercury, which is much closer to the sun. And um, I had not heard anybody actually say we could become Venus. Do you think we could become Venus? Look, that's a really, really good question. Um, and I, I think... <laughs> the death of all life well, is yeah, what that's we're talking right. about yeah, Exactly, that's right. You would have to say that the Earth system so far has 
withstood a series of shocks over the last four billion years, which have been fairly Meteorite, extreme. Meteorites, warming sun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's continents right, wandering yeah, around. That's right. Oxidation, so exactly. going to yeah. you know anaerobic or aerobic life. That was a big deal. Exactly. So I'm not so concerned about the extermination of life. Mm. What I'm concerned about is a weakening of the productivity of the planet to the point that it cannot support this very expensive, greedy, uh, selfish global intelligence. Right? It, it, this, we are the most expensive item on the Gaian menu by far. And we need a robust, healthy, productive... But we're, the, we're more Earth adaptive. Uh, hmm. We could lose rainforests, we could lose the oceans, there would still be some greedy people around. We're better yeah. than cockroaches now at surviving. Sure, but look, there are, there are real concerns with, with this because if, with the Amazon rainforest, a good example, the destruction of the Amazon rainforest could lead to a positive feedback loop that puts, or negative, yeah, positive feedback loop that puts you know, a couple of hundred gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere. Because, you know, a lot of the rainforest over the Amazon is generated by the rainforest itself. If you knock down enough of it, you know, the, the climate modelling says you could have a semi-desert there. You know, that the rain, there's not enough rain from the sources. Is that what sources. happened 55 million years ago? We, well, we're trying to work out what happened 55 million years ago, but the best analysis to date suggests that there was an eruption of methane from the seafloor in the North Sea that put an enormous in the pulse. North sea. Yeah. It was These are clathrates... Maybe class rates, maybe more conventional gas deposits, but there may have been volcanic activity, kind of like firing up a barbecue, you know. There's hot mm -hmm. rocks down there and they, they, uh, they cause an explosion in the, or a heating of the, the, all of the, the petrochemicals down in the rocks. Mm -hmm. They erupt through the seafloor and people have found a crater that they erupted from, or the craters, and straight up into the atmosphere and you get a massive pulse of greenhouse gases, an instant peaking of, of temperature and... You know, before you know it, you've got you've got lemurs living in the rainforest of Greenland. You know, the temperature spikes, and it takes ten thousand years at least for the Earth to start cooling down again. Only ten thousand years. How long yeah. did it take for the onset? I wonder. Is this one of those abrupt climate changes? Seems change to deals? be instantaneous. It's like this stuff erupts. What do you mean instantaneous? Well, it's like once the once the greenhouse gas is in the air, you've got the warming occurring over over decades or centuries. It's kind of, on a geological timescale, it's pretty instantaneous. <laughs> but this is an event that happened 55 million years ago, so it's, it's, it's really hard, hard to... to get that... Yeah. yeah. Fine, get the data. <laughs> you, you were, we were talking earlier about climate. I, I should say that Tim is, uh, is a biologist and still practices, but he's been in the thick of climate stuff professionally and at a global scale for quite a while now, working in Copenhagen and everywhere else. And... You were saying that there's this kind of uh, oscillation that goes on between the ocean controlling the atmosphere and the climate and the continents controlling the atmosphere and the climate. How does that story play out? Well, one of the mysteries of, of sort of the Gaian regulatory system is that for the last two million years we've been switching from ice age conditions to interglacial conditions mm -hmm. as a result of a very tiny change in the Earth's system. It, and that what, what is controlling whether we're in an ice age or not is um, are celestial factors, which include the, the orbit of the Earth around the sun, the, um, the, the tilt of the Earth on its axis, and the wobble of the Earth on its axis. And every 100,000 years or so, those three cycles conspire to create a cool summer in the northern hemisphere because the mm -hmm. north is, is pointed away from the sun and mm -hmm. the Earth's a bit further from the sun than it should be. 
you only get about, it's about a tenth of 1% at most of variation in sunlight that's hitting Good the planet. Lord. It's a very tiny initial trigger, but that causes an alteration in average global temperatures for the, of the planet by 5 degrees, from 15 back down to 10 or you know, mm -hmm. 9 to 14, wherever it is. So massive change. Why is that happening? You know, one possibility is that the Earth system is not a single coherent whole with a single objective, if you want, in terms of regulation, but that the oceans like temperatures at 10 degrees or less because... At those low temperatures, you get circulation in the, in 10 the water column. Celsius. 10 degrees Celsius or less. What's that Fahrenheit? I don't know, it's about 40 something. Yeah, 40, around about. It's cold. 50, is it? Yeah. So they like it really, they like We the use a lot of crowdsourcing here. Yeah, do it. Excellent. It's very good. <laughs> Calculations. Yeah. But anyway, they like it very cold, the oceans, because mm -hmm. then you get circulation in the water column and nutrients coming to the surface and you optimize life in the oceans. Um, but on land, the you know, land-based life prefers it at around 23 degrees Celsius because there you've got optimum conditions for plant growth on land. So it may be that this this uh, shift it's an from ocean an ice planet. Age. So it would seem like oceans probably have the majority rule. Yeah, you'd think so. But somehow, or other, we kick out of that oceanic control if that's what's doing it mm -hmm. quite quickly, quite suddenly into a warmer phase. We never get to 23 degrees. We're always, you know, 14 mm -hmm. or so, but it seems to be kicked up towards that. So that's one explanation for, for this um, almost like a bimodal mm -hmm. condition of the Earth system. And what's uh, the future of that? I've heard <clears throat> it said that what humans do now makes uh, another ice age basically impossible. Yeah, look, the cycle is a 100,000-year cycle. You know, yeah, we're, we're due. We're overdue, actually. No, we're, we're, not, we're not really. We, 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 sh we should be on a slow cooling, but, you know, we're only... It was the last Ice Age only finished 20,000 years ago, so we've got about 80,000 years before we get back into those... You know, back into the next okay. deep Ice Age and kick back up. Um, it, 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 look, it's hard to say. The dynamics of the system are really complex, and the, the modelling that we're doing, you know... Is, is reasonable for a century, but those longer-scale questions are really hard, actually, to, okay, so to get a handle question. on. The models have been getting better. Will they get better enough? Is it a tractable, is it a tractably understandable system, this severely nonlinear system yeah, of climate? Yeah, that's right. And climate interaction with life are just starting to get models, I gather, that include Gaian mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, do you think that that is, say, by mid-century this planet brain would have really predictive models of climate? Yeah, I do think so. I we think do? That, yeah, I, I think that's possible. The, the, the climate science is developing incredibly quickly, and mm. one of the best examples that I can point to of that is that it was only earlier this year in March that climate scientists were able to point with a high degree of confidence to the impact of the warming trend on individual weather events, and the weather events they looked at were flooding in Europe, and particularly the flooding in Wales in 2000. And, um, hmm. you know, the, Europe has a density of weather stations now that are sufficiently old that you can, you know, by, by analysing that data, you've got a great data set and you can actually assign, you know, probabilities of impact from the warming on these individual weather events. And that is hugely powerful. Not yet possible in places like the US, as far as I'm aware, or Australia, but in Europe they can. Just because they've got such good data? Yeah, and, and the, well, the climate scientists are very demanding. I mean, they really want a high degree of confidence with this stuff before they announce the results. So you've got mm -hmm. to have a good data set to show that the shift has occurred and that this has had an impact. Steve Schneider used to say that uh, 
Anything less than 10 years isn't climate yet, it's just weather. That's right, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But we're now getting to the point where we can actually look at individual weather events in the context of this warming trend. And what's interesting about that, of course, is that opens up the whole question of liability because it opens the potential for someone saying, well, my house that was flooded there was flooded because of your pollution. And that... As that, as that, as oh, we wait get... a minute, this is a global problem. This is, sure, they're going to yeah, sue yeah. all the coal companies at once? Well, yeah, you might decide to, to sue the sector. You might decide to concentrate on one of the big ones and say, I'll just take 10% because your pollution was only 10%. Who knows how it's going to work out in the courts? <laughs> I do not know. But I think that it's interesting to see that the science is getting to the point now of linking individual weather events with the warming trend. And where that's going to go is anybody's guess. But the science keeps getting better year by year. Well, you're right, that becomes a, uh, a very uh, detailed blame apparatus, doesn't it? Yeah, well, potentially. I don't know how, I have no idea how it would work out in the courts. It may not go anywhere, but it's just interesting that we're now beginning to see, I think, that the responsibility, you know, for individual events can be uh, so blamed on the shift. You keep saying a new beginning, and uh, this is a matter of hope. Um, is this a... Uh, we think in centuries these days, and we try to encourage thinking in centuries. Um, how exciting and hopeful is this century to you? Well, it's without doubt the century of decision. This is a century that human population is going to peak. Uh, we can see the looming food crisis and the water crisis and the energy crisis, so we know that what we do, what this generation does, and, and what we do over the next 10 or 20 years is, is, is tremendously important. Um, but I find it really exciting because if you look at the pace of change in the correct time frame, it is very, very fast. And can, can I just point out one trap we humans always fall into is, you know, we look at the 24-hour news cycle, we look at what's happening day-to-day -day in our environment, and we can be driven to despair because that is a bit like making an investment in your retirement fund in the stock market and then looking at the stock market every five minutes to work out whether you're going to retire wealthy or poor, right? Mm -hmm. It's the wrong time frame. You've got to look at a longer time frame. And success is measured in the, in the climate arena on a decadal scale, really, because it's a big problem. You know? Just think back six years. No one had heard of an inconvenient truth. Yeah? The climate scientists were pulling their hair out about this problem, and yet the public was, by and large, unaware of it. Mm -hmm. Since then, we've had uh, the biggest meeting of heads of government anywhere on the planet, in Copenhagen, biggest meeting in the history of humanity of heads of government. Right? They came together not to discuss nuclear disarmament or anything else but climate change. Mm. We came out of that meeting with an agreement called the Copenhagen Accord that for the first time bound developing countries in. So this is now a whole... It's a global agreement that mm. we're getting towards. And we're now doing the really hard work of turning the emissions curve down. And your country started on that. You're at minus 9%. You know, China started on it. My country has started on it. So... Where we'll be five years, ten years from now, I don't know. But I can see that we've started the work and I think the pace of change is only going to accelerate mm. as we start bringing the renewable uh, technologies to scale and get vertical integration in the industries and start getting acceptance and start learning how to use those intermittent sources of energy better. Um, I don't know where we're going to be in five years. I mean, electric cars are a great example. But I know things are changing and I think rather than look at the day-to-day the way to empower ourselves and give ourselves the energy and courage we need to go forward in what is a very difficult task is to take that five-year time frame. 
You're a long now kind of guy. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.